Uh, we're in the book of Matthew, and we're talking about Judas is going to be remorseful. And I don't know about you, but I think remorse is something that is common to every human being. You wish you wouldn't have done this, or you wish you wouldn't have done that. You wish you wouldn't have gone to that party at that time, and this is the result, okay? I mean, this is, we have all those things that happen to us. Well, Judas is going to feel remorseful, and he's going to want a second chance, and he's going to go to the chief priest and the elders, and they're just going to just shun him and throw him off to the side. So if you would, stand for reading of God's Word. We're in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 through 10. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is the word of God. Our Father, we give you thanks for this time to study the inerrant, infallible word of the living God that you have given us for us to know what our God expects of us. Lord, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd open every heart here, be ready to receive what you have for them today from your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather corporately. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And every week I say that, and every week I'm looking more forward than ever to the king coming, the king coming and reigning in this world and making everything right. What we talked about last time was Peter's three denials of Jesus. Remember, he started out with a servant girl who said, accused him of being with Jesus and he said, I do not know what you are saying. And then he crescendos by the third time, he says this. He began to curse and to swear. And then he says, I do not know the man and how far Peter has fallen. He doesn't know the man, not the master, not the Messiah, not the Savior, but the man. I remember in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, who, who do people say that I am? And then old Peter pipes up and says, oh, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, how far he has fallen from that time in Matthew 16 until his betrayal of Jesus. Peter's final denial in Luke 22:60 says this, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and looked right into his soul and Peter could feel the pain of betraying his Savior. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly because of what he had done. What Jesus is dealing with with Peter and what God is dealing with with Peter is this. He's dealing with Peter's pride. God hates pride, and he's going to deal with Peter's pride, and he will deal with our pride for sure. If We all have that problem. We all have the problem. We have the DNA of pride that was came with sin into this world. We all have it, folks. It's the reason that we do things that we should not do. Pride, pride. 
Pride was the reason for Lucifer's fall. Remember, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt myself above the stars of heaven. I'm going to be worshipped as God. And God says, oh, no, you won't. Oh, no, you won't. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High. Pride, what is it? It's the excessive love of one's own excellence. Zadiades describes it this way. One who shows himself above his fellow man. I am the fill in the blank. I am the I am the, Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. Well, yeah. No, you're not. You're not the greatest. God is great. We are not. Pride was the reason, again, for Lucifer's fall. And Adam and Eve bought into the pride lie. Remember when God told Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, you will die. God always warns before he judges. And he warned them. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they said you would die. Now, what must have entered Adam and Eve's mind? What in the world is die? Because up to that time, there was no death in God's creation. Everything was perfect. Die. You must know that die is not non-existence or annihilated, but separation from God. The ultimate death is when someone is separated from God for eternity because they have not believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Separation is what death is. Satan's lie. He always lies. He's the master liar. And he says this. He's always challenging the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, when he's dealing with Adam and Eve, he says this, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That was countering what God says. The day that you eat of it, you will die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, exactly what Satan wanted to do, be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve ate, Adam ate, and the rest is history. Death came into God's perfect world, and that's the reason we die, folks. It's the reason why you get, well, I get COVID, and hopefully you won't. And uh, we get diseases and illnesses and that sort of thing. Death, disease, misery came into God's perfect creation because of sin. And whenever you see something bad happen, don't blame it on God. Blame it on humanity's falling for the lie of the lying serpent. Pride. You know what? People want to be the master of their own fate. I'll be the captain of my own soul. Remember, invictus, unconquered, unbowed. I will be God. I will run my life. Oh, no, you won't. Luke 19, 14 says this. We will not have this man, speaking of Jesus, ruling over us. And that's what people say today when they reject Jesus. We will not have this man rule over us. I will run my own ship. I'm the captain of my own fate. Satan's pride was passed on to humanity, folks. And I believe that pride is part of our DNA, our fallen DNA. And pride must be dealt with. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, 2, listen to this. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. What did Peter feel when he was prideful? I won't fall. All these other guys, they're going to stumble, but not me. And when he fell, he felt guilt and shame. Peter, Judas felt the same thing. He felt shame at betraying Jesus. Pride is the root of all sin, the drive for self-exaltation. I have a question for you. 
I have a question for you, and I really want you to pay attention to this. How does God root out pride in us? How does he root it out in us? All pride leaves. Now listen, when a person realizes who they are in relationship to the holiness of God, the perfection of God, James 4.10 says this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That word humble is tapinios. I'm going to repeat this word several times in this talk. You're not going to see it on the screen, so memorize it. Tapinios. Tapinios, humble, lowly. The sinner is tapinios when he recognizes his or her sinfulness, which is their true condition. Judas was not tapinios. He was not humble in the sight of God. How do I recognize my sinfulness? Usually, it requires us to be broken by God. Now, I don't know how many people in here have been broken by God, but I bet just about everybody has. Just about everybody has. You've been broken by God. That's, a, that's called a wilderness experience. The wilderness experience. A wilderness is a place where God strips away every vestige of self-righteousness. Every vestige. And a person comes away knowing who they are and who God is. That's what you learn in the wilderness. In the wilderness, a person realizes that this life has been gifted to them, and we owe God for our lives. Everything. You learn in the wilderness that it's not about me. It's about God and what God wants to do with me. Listen to this. There is no pride in the presence of holiness. Let that just really sink in. A.W. Tozer is going to make a comment on Isaiah chapter 6. That's the throne of God. When Isaiah sees the throne of God. And from his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he writes this statement. Quote, The sudden realization of his personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah at the moment when he had his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God. His pain-filled cry Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, expresses the feeling of every man who has discovered himself under his disguises, his cover-up, his hypocrisy, and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy purity that is God, such an experience cannot be but emotionally violent. The holiness of God. He goes on to say this, another quote. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of light, of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. God alone is holy no human can stand in any hubris, any arrogance before the holiness, the light, the purity of Almighty God. When a man or woman sees God as they really are, abject, dishonor, hubris, arrogance flees from the presence of God's holiness. Woe is me, Isaiah 6, 5. For I am undone. I am a dead man because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in amongst the people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Peter's pride was dealt with, folks, and God will deal with our pride. Remember, God hates pride. He hates pride. Six things God hates, seventh is abomination to him. And that first one was a proud look, a haughty eye, someone that thinks highly of themselves. We realize when we come in the presence of God, his abject holiness and who he is, the creator, and who we are, the created. He is the master. I am the servant. I am a doulos, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. My will consumed with the will of the master. That's how you come out of the wilderness. That's how you come out of a, of a confrontation with the living God who shows you who he is and who you are. And in spite of who we are, he loves us immensely. Isn't that the most astounding thing in the world? That a God that is that pure and that holy could love us as much as he does. That is an astounding thing to me. Now, this week we're going to talk about Judas is going to feel the remorse. He's going to have this feeling of, I wish I hadn't have done that. Now, we've all been there. I wish I could take this back. I wish I could have a do-over. And he starts out in verse 3 and 4, and we discover what Judas is going through. Now, watch what he says here. Then Judas, his betrayer. Whenever you see a list of the disciples in Scripture, Peter is always first, Judas is always last, and he's always the one that betrayed Jesus. Forever he will be known as the betrayer. Seeing that he, he had been condemned, Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elder saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And watch the response. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. You see to it. That's your problem. That's not my problem. That's not our problem. So what's going on here? Who hasn't felt that feeling of remorse? It's common to every human, that regret for the course taken. Wish I wouldn't have done that. Feeling really bad about what you've done. But in this context, the word remorse, what it really means is this. Remorseful is the word metamelomai. And it means to regret but no effective change of heart. I feel really bad for what's happened, but no heart change, no heart change, no humbleness, no tapinios, no humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. No, no, it's arrogance, no tapinios, remorse, regret without an effective heart change. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 Chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 contrasts true repentance and worldly repentance. Listen to what Paul says. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Repentance is metanoia. Remember, it's a change of mind. I'm changing my mind about who God is and my response and my responsibility to God. For we were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, not to be regretted, but, oh, the sorrow of this world produces death, ungodly repentance. Genuine repentance. Again, that word is metanoio. That's the verb form. It means to repent with regret accompanied by a true change of heart towards God. 
True change of heart. Now, hear this. Real repentance, true repentance always, always, always leads to a changed life. You cannot repent before God and come in contact with the holiness of God without your life being changed, without you thinking differently. A life directed towards God and away from this world. Now, are we going to walk this thing out perfect while we're here? No, because we know it's direction, not perfection. We're moving towards God. Now, I always was wondering, what in the world is Judas thinking when he goes back to these chief priests and elders? I mean, he knew what he was doing. He willfully led a group of armed soldiers to arrest Jesus. He did it for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a gourd slave. He did it with betraying with a kiss. He knew that, he knew that there was going to be a trial. He knew there was going to be bad things that were going to happen to Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now he's feeling the remorse for his decision. He's feeling the guilt and the shame. Ever been there? Feeling the guilt and the shame from what you've done? You know why you feel that? God has given every single human that is born into this world a conscience. He has written the law on the hearts of every person so you know that you know that you have done wrong before the living God. You might try to cover it up. You might try to put it out of your mind. But you know in the depths of your soul, with knowledge, con with shunt's knowledge, you have sinned against a holy God. And remember this, all sin is when I act independent of God and do it my way. I will have my way, God. I will have my way. Now, Judas's shame and guilt might have resulted from him reflecting on his time with Jesus. Because remember, he walked at least three, three years with Jesus. And he came in contact with pure holiness, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He never saw Jesus act out of character other than who he was. He never saw Jesus gossip. He never saw him lash out for no reason at all. He never saw him degrade people. What does Judas want? What does Judas want? He wants what we want, relief from our guilt and shame. Relief from our guilt and shame. Here, every word commentary has this to say. Watch what they say. Quote, Judas felt boiling up within him an intense remorse and grief, the sense of being all alone. Don't you feel that when you've sinned against God and you feel that block between you and God all alone? Even without God and a sense of not knowing what to do. It was too much, more than he could bear. He felt he could explode if he did not get relief of soul and some sort of deliverance. I just need some sort of deliverance from this. Psalm 38, 4 says it this way. For my iniquities have gone over my head, I'm drowning. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. Psalm 51, 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, gnawing at me. Folks, listen to this. Either you deal with your sin, or your sin will deal with you. It's one or the other. Deal with your sin. The problem is, Judas is going to seek relief Judas' way. He's going to go his way. Now, how many today seek relief from their shame and their guilt their way? And you know what it results in? Drugs, 
alcohol, sex addictions, food addictions, exercise addictions, work addictions, sports addictions, gambling addictions, any addiction, you just make it up in your mind. You turn to that instead of turning to the living God who can really deliver you. Judas' fatal mistake. Listen to this. Judas confesses to the priest, not to God. That's the wrong people to go to. The people you conspired with. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's what he says to them. Their response was not welcomed by Judas. What is that to us? What is that to us? That's your problem. No sympathy. No sympathy whatsoever. Curt, harsh. Who else does that to you? When they dangle the bait in front of you, when, when this being dangles the bait in front of you and you snatch the bait and you just gobble it up and then your life becomes a mess and you're re- lamenting your decision and then Satan says to you, what are you to me? What are you to me? Just live out the consequences of that decision. What are you to me? Judas was nothing to them. He was just baggage. Judas felt bad, wanted relief from his guilt and shame, but he went to the wrong source. Went to the wrong source. Judas did it his way, not God's way. You know what God loves? A broken and contrite heart. Listen to Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Philispus, squeezed, crushed in spirit. That's our God. That's our God. He's close to the brokenhearted. Save those who are crushed, who come with a repentant, confessing attitude. Judas went to men for relief, not God. Now, I want to take a little side track here. I never do that, but you get to hear another side track. Okay, it's not that you don't seek counsel from men or women. You, know, you go to the appropriate person. But I want to encourage you something. First thing you do when you mess up and you got a mess in your life is you go to God. That's number one. Right out of the chute. Don't le- ever let the enemy say you've gone too far. This is too deep. This is too difficult. You're never going to get out of this. Oh, no. Immediately turn to God. And then you can get help from people. Now, I would recommend the people that you go to meet this, this criteria. Number one, a believer. I'm not talking about a make-believer believer, but a real believer, okay, that really trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Secondly, you want to go to someone who's been through the situation you've been through. There's a, there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those with the same way that we have been comforted by our God. We could enter into that situation. Somebody that's been through something is uniquely qualified to help you through that mess. So number one, you're a believer. Number two, someone who's been there, been down that road. And number three, and most importantly in this whole thing, someone that can keep a confidence. You don't go before a group like this and spill your guts. People aren't equipped to take it. They're not equipped to take it. And you're going to be judged for the rest of your life. You're just a miserable sinner. You want someone that can enter into your discomfort. They've been there, can help you through that mess. Someone that can keep a confidence. That's a unique trait. 
Because sometimes it just bubbles over into you and you just have to tell somebody. Oh, don't tell anybody, but, but this is what Joey did. But don't tell anybody. And then that person goes and tells somebody, and, that per- and before you know it, it's all over the place. Keep a confidence. Now, I have a question for you. Could Judas have been forgiven for this atrocity of denying Jesus, of, of turning him in? Yes, that's right, yes. If he went to God and genuinely repented. Here's Sean McDowell on this. He's the son of Josh McDowell, if you know him. He's an apologist. He says this. Here is the bottom line. The sin of Judas was great. He had seen the miracles of Jesus, had heard his teaching, and still betrays him for money. And yet Jesus would have restored him. And then he says this, and I think it should resonate with each one of us. If God can forgive Judas, then he can forgive any of us. Folks, we just saw a thing on abortion. And how many women have had abortions and they feel the guilt and the shame of that? But folks, you can be forgiven for that. You can be forgiven for anything if you come before God in a repentant, confessing spirit. Never think that you've gone too far. God can forgive you. God is a God, I can tell you from experience, He's a God of second chances, third chances, quadruple chances, billions of chances. He's a God of start overs and new beginnings. He is. That is our God. Now, instead of repenting, what does Judas do? He pulls the trigger on the most vicious thing that you can do. He hangs himself in verse 5. Then he threw down the pieces of silver. He's all ticked off at these guys because they rejected him in the temple and departed and he went and hanged himself. Now, listen to this. Judas did it his way. How sad. He did it his way. He threw the money into the temple. Now, this is significant. The temple is the word naos. It's the holy of holies. So now the priests are going to be ceremonially unclean because they have to go in and get this blood money and take it out of the temple. So now the priests are ticked off. He didn't take it and throw it at the priest. He didn't throw it at their feet. Prophecy in Zechariah says he had to throw it into the temple, and that's exactly what he did. Threw it into the temple. Judas, in a fit of despair, then goes and commits suicide and hangs himself. Now, the pain must have been unrelenting. His only relief was ending it all, but I have a question for you. Did it end it all? And the answer is, N-O spells no. Okay? No, it does not. Judas' actions simply resulted in his eternal destiny sealed forever because he refused to repent. He refused to repent. And folks, I want to tell you this right out as strongly as I possibly can. We are all eternal beings, and we will all live forever, either with God or separated from God. If we are with God, it is called eternal life. If we are separated from God, it is eternal death, separation. And when you pass, when I do funerals now, I'm trying to make it a point to do this. Instead of saying this person is dead, I like to say they are life. If they're a believer, that they are lifed. You have been given life, eternal life. This is the best day of your life, of your existence, because you're before the throne of Almighty God. So many believe wrongly that death is the end of it all, folks. It is not. 
death of our bodies is simply our, begins our eternal existence. Listen to this statement. We are all hurtling towards a destiny. Most are unaware of this. Most are simply lost. That's the majority of humanity. Simply lost. Chuck Swindoll in his book, Stress Fractures, comments on this. This is a quote from him. It is interesting to note that one of the terms the Bible uses to describe people who don't know God in a personal manner is lost. That doesn't mean they are immoral or lawless or bad neighbors or financial failures or emotionally unstable or irresponsible or even unfriendly folks. They're just lost. They may be sincere, involved, in touch with many people, moving rapidly through life. They may even feel good about themselves, confident, secure, enthusiastic, yet still lost. Unconsciously moving through life out of touch with the one who made them, disconnected from the living God, lost. Lost. These are Proverbs 14, 12, folks. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is the way of death. The way a person goes through life may seem great and wonderful. They might have schools named after them, bridges named after them, libraries named after them, but lost. Great in the eyes of the world, but lost. Judas, folks, was lost. Instead of seeking God for forgiveness, he was hurled into eternity, separated from the only source of love and goodness in the universe forever. Forever. Now, I have a slide here. You've seen this many different times. Right way, wrong way. Now look, at this is usually a little bitty path because most people choose wrongly. They choose the wrong way. They're going with the majority. But you have a decision to make. There's an eternal decision that you make to follow Christ or not. Follow the ways of the world or follow Christ. There's a daily moment-by-moment -moment decision that you have to make. Am I going to live for Christ today or am I going to go my own way? These are decisions that you make. The big one is the eternal decision. Am I going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not? Am I going to follow the light or am I going to follow the darkness of this world? Am I going to go the way of the majority or am I going to take the road that is least traveled? Where the minority go? Where the minority go? Make sure you're on the right road. Jesus said something very profound that is usually ignored by most people. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he said something very specific. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many, many, many go in by it. And narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few, few who find the right road. The Jesus road is the only road. You know what Jesus said? to those that will follow the narrow road. He said in Matthew chapter 11, 28, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. You can see the personality of Jesus. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That egregious sin, that guilt and shame that you're dealing with, whatever it might have been, 
You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Never, ever, ever follow the majority. It is doubtful that the majority are ever correct because the majority are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are believers in this world system. Never follow the majority. Never follow the polls that say this is what we should do. Never. You follow what the precepts of this word are. That's what you follow. Then the next thing that happens is the potter's field. Interesting little tidbit here. The potter's field in verses 6 through 8. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. This is blood money. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, what's going on here? The chief priest, the elders, they want to look good. And they know that this is blood money. They can't put it into the regular treasury, so they want to look good. They're going to buy this cemetery. So these legalists consult together to see what good they can do with this blood money. And they purchased the potter's field, which is a public cemetery for Gentiles. Now, I can imagine these chief priests and these elders put a great big sign up there, contributed by the chief priest and the elders, look how good we are. Look how, isn't that what humans do? Look how great we are. I want notification for this. Look how wonderful we are. In verse 9 through 10, I want you to pick up on a word here. And it's fulfilled. Watch this. Then was fulfilled. That means something that was predicted in the past came to fruition in the future. This is fulfilled prophecy, okay? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced. Interesting word usage. It's the price to betray Jesus. Whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. This is not Jeremiah. Now, a lot of people go, oh my goodness, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. We can't trust the Bible. There's a discrepancy there. Allow John MacArthur and many others to help us with this. Watch what he says. The Hebrew canon was divided into three sections, law, writings, and prophets. Jeremiah came first in order of the prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So the prophets were sometimes collectively referred to by his name, Jeremiah. So this is actually a quote from, from Matthew, Matthew's quoting Zechariah eleven thirteen, and he applies it to the, to the Messiah. Now again, this is fulfilled prophecy. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, it's 30 pieces, not 40 pieces, not 20 pieces, not 80 pieces, not one piece, 30. Just like Judas betrayed for, 30 pieces and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. This is exactly what happened. 30 pieces of silver was the exact amount Judas agreed to betray Jesus for, the price of a gourd slave. Judas then threw the money into the house of the Lord 
just like Zechariah said. Now, you think Judas is going before these chief priests and saying, well, I think I need to fulfill Zechariah chapter 11, and I need to do this perfectly. So instead of throwing it at their face like I want to do, I'm going to throw it into the temple. No, he's not doing that. He's acting out of his guts, out of his guts. God is behind the scenes orchestrating all of this, folks. And let me say this loud and clear. You are Calvary Chapel people. You know this to be true. Fulfilled prophecy separates Christianity and biblical, the Bible, from all other world religions. All of them. Now, I want to close with this. Fulfilled prophecy, it's all true. It's all true. Now, I'm going to make some statements here, and I'm going to back them up. The Bible is true. Christianity is true. There is proof that you are believing the truth. Now, take a hard stop right here. What is truth? You know how the truth is? You know how it's defined? That which really is. Now, let me say something here. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. That's what really is. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what really is. How do I know? God says so, not humanity. Humanity does not dictate to us what the truth is. God tells us what the truth is. Now, our question for the public comes from Oz Guinness, or a statement from Oz Guinness. And he says this, one word of truth can dispel a world of lies. Folks, when you are presented with an absolute lie, you stand on the authority of God, and you're not trying to be obnoxious or, or mean or nasty or anything like that, but you simply stand for the truth. God says, this is what it is. And so that is what it is. It's really that simple. It doesn't have to be debated. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Okay, that settles it. Now, I want you to hear the prophet Isaiah. Now, the following scriptures, he's going to be commenting on 44, 6 through 8, 46, 9 through 10, and 48, 5 and 6. And this is a quote from somebody, and I forgot where I got the quote from, but it is not from me. So, this is the quote. The book of the prophet Isaiah contains an incredible claim. The Lord God is contrasting himself with the pagan gods, which many people worship in the form of idols. Now, people would go to their idols to find out the truth, to try to get in contact with the dead, to do necromancy, and to do all kinds of sorcery and that sort of thing. God says, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. God says this, here is how you will know that I am the one true God. And those so-called gods that you're running to are nothing. I will tell you the end from the beginning. I will tell you what happens before it happens, and it will come to pass. That will be proof to you that I alone am God. That's fulfilled prophecy. Now, I want to give you some examples of this. Consider Daniel. The book of Daniel went through a thorough study of that who many claim could not have possibly predicted with such accuracy the, the decline and ascent of kingdom's future. Now you have Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Remember Daniel 
In 605 B.C., he went into captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't want to eat the king's stuff. He ate his own food. He came out better, and he, he could interpret dreams. He gets, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the statue. Okay, that's the setting. No one can interpret the dream. They get Daniel to interpret the dream. And he says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you're the head. You're the head, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the chief. You're the greatest kingdom in this world has ever known. And, in, and this, Daniel wrote this when he went in Babylonian captivity. He was also in the very beginning of Persian captivity, and he told Nebuchadnezzar that Persia would take over, and they did. Now, now Daniel dies early on in this Persian empire, and he predicted that Greece would come about, and Greece did. Then he predicted that Rome would come about, and not only would Rome come about, but that there would be an east and west division of Rome, which exists to this day. There are nations that are eastern nations and nations that are western nations. This is where we are today, in the east-west division of the Roman Empire. Now, what comes next are the toes, are the toes. Now, I want you to notice what happens to the toes. A stone is cut out of the mountain. The stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he smote the image upon its feet. This is Antichrist kingdom. I'm going to give you some nasty pictures of some toes in just a second. But hold on. And he became a mountain and filled the whole earth. This is Christ's kingdom coming as he destroys Antichrist kingdom. And the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Now, the next picture are the nasty toes. This is the iron and clay that does not cleave together. And they have infighting. And when, when, when Antichrist takes over, three of these kingdoms revolt against the Antichrist. He subdues them very quickly. And by the middle of the tribulation, he has solidified power, and he's in charge of these ten kingdoms. But the God of heaven, when he comes back, will be the stone that destroys that kingdom. And his kingdom will be set up, and it will be a kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus, the promised king, to come back. Now, I want you to think about this. Consider Judas' betrayal. Consider Judas' betrayal of Jesus. This was predicted in John 13, 18. And Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, 9. He who eats bread with me has lifted his heel up against me. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, as we have stated in Zechariah. Judas threw the silver into the temple, just like Zechariah said he would. Coincidence? No, I believe this is fulfilled prophecy. Now consider this next one. Most people don't mention this, but I think this is fulfilled prophecy. Peter's betrayal. It was a specific way that Peter betrayed in Matthew 26, 34. Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows twice in other scriptures, you'll deny me three times. Now, what happens? Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Not one time, not two times, not five times three times, and it was when the rooster crowed twice. Not no rooster crowing, not one rooster crowing, but two rooster crowing. It, it, it happened exactly. Is this coincidence? No, this is orchestrated by God. It's fulfilled prophecy. Now I want you to consider 
the crucifixion of Jesus. They cast lots for Jesus, just like it was predicted in the Old Testament. His garments were not torn. There would be false witnesses. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have the guts to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Pilate didn't have to give him the body. He could have left him hanging up there or could have left him, thrown him into a common grave, which was commonly done at that time with, these, with robbers and, and insurrectionists, as Jesus was accused of. Being an no common grave. He was buried in a rich man's tomb because it was prophesied that it would happen. He was also crucified with the transgressors. He wasn't by himself. And he was also, he experienced crucifixion. He didn't get his head cut off like John the Baptist did or Paul. He wasn't stoned like they did to Paul at least once. He wasn't stoned to death. He was crucified. And in Matthew 26, 2, after two days, Jesus says this, after the Passover, is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be, will be betrayed and be given up to be crucified. And the crowd, two days later, are screaming in front of Pilate saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus predicted that he would be crucified. No one can orchestrate these events. It, it, they, it, it's too complex. This is not a ruse or a lie. And you must realize roughly one-third of the Bible is made up of prophecy. 27% of your Bible is prophetic, telling you what's going to happen. Much of it's already been fulfilled. According to one calculation, this is an astounding number, I did not confirm this, but it's stunning and worth at least thinking about. There are 332 Messianic prophecies from the Hebrew Bible fulfilled by Jesus. That's stunning. No other world religion has one. How could this degree of accuracy happen? God. God only. God. Now, most people have heard what I'm going to share in the conclusion here. A man named Peter Stoner in the journal Science Speak, is going to tell us about the science of probability. He demonstrates that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. Let that word science just kind of resonate in your minds as we've gone through follow the science, the phony science that we saw so much of. Using modern science in reference to eight prophecies, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros, folks. That's a number you can't even say. That is an astounding number. And then he gives an illustration. Imagine filling the state of Texas knee deep. Not just covering the state. Knee deep in silver dollars. That's 100 trillion silver dollars. Included in this huge number, one silver dollar with a black check mark. Then turn a blindfolded person loose in this sea of silver dollars. The odds that the first coin he would pick up would be the one with the black check mark are the same as eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of Jesus. 
Now, I suggest this to you. Fill this room. I got the next picture here. Fill this room with silver dollars. Blindfold somebody to go into this room just on the floor. You don't have to go up to the knees. And just have that person just randomly pick the one with the black mark. Consider the state of Texas is as huge as it is. Now, this following statement is even more profound. 48 prophecies be fulfilled. It goes to 10 to the 157th power. The number of electrons in the universe, in the universe, the expanse of the universe is only 10 to the 79th power. This is 48 prophecies. It should be evident that Jesus did not fulfill the prophecies by accident or coincidence. Jesus is who he said he is. He is God. He is the Lord God Almighty. Never forget that. He is who he said he is. And he is the only way to God. Remember he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Folks, I want you to hear this loud and clear. You might have a rough life. You might have a lot of stuff that's going against you right now. But I can tell you unequivocally that Jesus is still the answer. You can trust God's word. Hear Jesus when talking about his word. Your word is truth. Truth in this world of lies. Truth. John 17, 17. We also know that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And Jesus is the way and the truth. The way and the truth. So, let me say this. Oh, very quickly. Do not allow our world that we live in today who wants to mesmerize you with all kinds of lies, convince you that this religious Jesus stuff is all make-believe. That you're dumb, ignorant, silly, brainwashed to believe any of this. You go to university, you'll hear this. You go to a high school campus, you might hear this. Folks, you want to realize that what I'm telling you is all true. No one can deny the life of Jesus. Over 30 historians, non-believers, validate the life of Jesus. That he existed and he did what he said he did. No one can refute it. No one can deny the crucifixion of Jesus. It actually happened. Eyewitness testimony says so. No one can deny the resurrection of Jesus to Many eyewitnesses, over 500 at one time saw him in Galilee. 500. No one can deny the change in the disciples' lives after the resurrection. No one. They all died for their faith. They got the Spirit of God at Pentecost. That certainly gave them the power to do with the impossible. But they all died except for John, who they tried to boil in oil and exiled him to Patmos. No one can deny how this one solitary life has changed the world. And folks, I don't know about you, but I cannot deny how this life, how Christ has changed me. And I hope you feel the same way. Today, Jesus is still the answer. He is not old-fashioned. He is not make-believe. He is not just one of many world religions. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who strengthens you when you can hardly move. When you can't hardly get up and take another step. 
He's the one that strengthens you. He's the one who encourages you when, when you want to give up and say, no mas. Remember Roberto Duran? No mas, no more. He's the one that gives you hope when you feel hopeless. He is the one who'll get you through all the messes of your life. Folks, we make a mess of our lives, and Jesus comes and helps clean it up. He'll get you through the fires. He'll get you through the floods. And he will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. He is your friend. You see, Jesus is still the answer. He is still the answer. In 1980, there was a, there was a crusade here. And the chorus is, Jesus is still the answer. And it goes like this. We would sing it in the chorus at the crusade. Jesus is still the answer. And though time and ages roll, Jesus is still the answer. He's the answer for your soul. And though he does not fit with this world's philosophy, I know Jesus is still the answer. He always has and always will be. Jesus is still the answer. Never give up. Never give up. Turn to Jesus and live. So many people are simply lost. And they need to know Jesus is still the answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Lord, this is the word of the living God. People have come here today to hear from you, our God. And Lord, you have spoken to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your spirit that takes the word and indelibly imprints it into our souls, into our minds, into our hearts. And since we have heard the word of God today, may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. May we live out our faith all out, guns blazing, so to speak, for our Savior and our Lord. May we give our all for the one who gave his all for us. Thank you for this time that we can corporately gather together and study the word of the living God. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.